I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. I'm Cynthia Graber. The application of the study of genetics and the use of big data to identify patterns of inheritance as well as de novo mutations has had a dramatic impact on the field of autism spectrum disorder research, and it offers pathways to a greater understanding of biological mechanisms, even potentially treatments. Matthew State, chair of the Department of Psychiatry at University of California, San Francisco, and his colleagues wrote a review paper in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology called Leveraging Large Genomic Datasets to Illuminate the Pathobiology of Autism Spectrum Disorders. Dr. State, in the paper, you explained that the genetic links are complicated. Scientists believe there may be 500 to 1,000 genes that are vulnerable to de novo mutations that cause damages to the function of the gene that then give rise to ASD. And then there are common changes in the genome, maybe thousands of these, that can cumulatively contribute to overall risk. How has this new understanding of genetics contributed to the field of ASD research so far, based on your review? You know, there was a lot of speculation about what the genetic architecture, meaning what kinds of variations contribute to autism and how do they contribute. And simply knowing that, you know, has been a major transformation for the field. There were some immediate observations around sort of this one-to-many problem that even when you have a single gene that may be highly penetrant and carry very large risk for autism, that suddenly our colleagues uh, who were studying schizophrenia in the absence of social disability were finding the identical gene in their cohort. So the notion that individual genes would specifically code either for subtypes of autism or autism as a whole just has turned out to not be the case. Now we're at a point where we're beginning to see that some genes may be more likely to contribute to social disability than overall intellectual disability or uh, attentional problems or language problems. But nature doesn't carve at the joints, so that was really underscored. And then at kind of a more specific level, the very first genes that we identified in idiopathic or garden variety autism pointed to a couple kind of large areas of annotated biological function that have held up over time. And then subsequent to that, there's been, you know, work that's begun to, to really bring some additional resolution and specificity to that. So now there are multiple papers that point to particular vulnerability and midfetal cortical development. And, and then there's also been convergence around the finding that uh, specific cell types and particularly excitatory neurons in midfetal development are one point of convergence. Now, there are likely to be others. We have hints around striatal neurons. There are other clues about other categories. And we would expect that it wouldn't be a single cell type at a single region contributing to all of autism. But even having that level of understanding at least allows us to begin to develop kind of the next generation of 
experiments, right? Once we have some link between a specific set of mutations, a specific cell type, and a specific developmental epoch, it really helps us narrow in on the question of what is the underlying pathology. This question of pathobiology is important because it can help direct research to potential areas of intervention or treatment. But there are so many different mutations, and these genes that are mutated can do different things in different times in different places. It's not a straightforward cause and effect. Plus, early brain development is incredibly dynamic. But also, you say that even early on, scientists saw some patterns around functional categories in the brain. So in the paper, you write about how scientists are now applying systems biology to try to understand how genetic changes in this incredibly complex landscape can give rise to ASD. What does this approach offer? These studies are obviously still going on. They are going on. And, and what's empowering them, and it's part of the point of the review article, is this kind of simultaneous and parallel explosion in understanding the molecular landscape of human brain development. Because, you know, what we did back in 2013, at the same time that Dan Geshwin's lab was doing kind of the same thing, was to take the list of genes, which basically is just this static list of names, but overlay a dynamic data set of gene expression over time, and then ask the question, we have this list of genes, but if you then play this out by looking at a more dynamic data set, is there a place in space and time that these start to come together? So initially, that database had to be developed kind of at the same time. So we had a collaborator down the hall, Nanad Sestin, who was working on what would become the BrainSpan project, which is kind of the first large collaborative effort to map out the gene expression landscape of developing human brain. But over time now, those have become much more detailed with many more samples. And then people have started adding, you know, layers and layers of data about things like gene regulation, epigenetic marks and epigenetic landscapes, proteomics, and then a key point is that we've gone from basically knowing this kind of information from chunks of brain. Now we're at a point where we can do single cell analysis. So it's kind of like getting this dynamic atlas of kind of molecular and cellular development of the brain. And in that context, the list of genes could be tremendously powerful in being able to identify kind of specific processes, specific targets, and specific time points for intervention. Speaking of intervention, obviously the goal of research is to translate it to medical practice. You write that there's current research into early genetic intervention for the single genetic mutations that lead to the most severe intellectual disability syndromes that overlap with autism. But these don't make up the majority of autism cases, most of which are caused by multiple changes in the genome. And these genetic mutations could have any variety of impacts later on in life, from social disability to language challenges to ADHD. You and your colleagues say there are very complex ethical and practical challenges to even the idea of testing a genetic treatment in such cases if you don't know exactly how the mutation will affect the patient and when. So I think, you know, what the likely future is, we start with the things where the phenotypes are predictable and very severe, and they're going to be a handful of genes, say the top 10 or so for autism, that may share those features, that where the penetrance is extremely high, where the outcome, there may be a range, but ultimately there's little question if you identify the gene for something like UB3A or some of the top autism genes that you're going to have a very severe phenotype. So gene targeting is not going to be a widely used intervention for idiopathic autism, just as inconceivable. But at the same time, I think there are a number of reasons why successes, even with the syndromic autism, 
could be profoundly important. One is that if it's successful and it's successful, um, even if we intervene after birth, then that's going to tell us something about the plasticity of these phenotypes, even in very severe cases, I think that would have a, a definitely an impact on the field in thinking about therapeutics. The second is, is that it would also potentially give us much deeper insight into downstream mechanisms that potentially, again, could be targeted with more traditional kinds of therapeutics that didn't have the same kind of risk and ethical challenges. So, you know, it's certainly not an overall answer. And I hope that we made it clear in the uh, review that this is, you know, way at the end of the distribution in terms of a viable intervention, but one that, that could have impacts that go well beyond sort of the small number of cases where um, that technology is actually going to be applied. So we've talked about research into systems biology for understanding mechanisms of action. We've talked about studies on early interventions and specific genes. What are some other avenues of research you see as important? There's more that we don't know about autism than we do know. And all of it is incredibly important. I think that certainly there's ton of great work being done on understanding basic biological consequences of these mutations. And I pointed out that the systems biology approach, you know, is a hypothesis. The reality is a lot of times progress is made by serendipity. So we may choose, you know, to take an approach that is doing multiple genes in parallel, but I wouldn't bet against labs that are going after individual genes and may find something remarkably important from that kind of approach. And I think it's really important, again, I think we mentioned it a bit in the, in the review, is that in order for any of this to turn into a therapeutic, the clinical research side in autism really needs support and attention because our ability to phenotype, our ability to you know, diagnose, but more importantly, to track symptoms over time and to understand trajectories of symptoms, particularly in early development, is quite primitive right now. And in order for us to be able to take something and say, you know, if we intervene at six months of age, you know, in the way that they're doing now for spinal muscular atrophy, what do we track? Like, how, how do we know that we're making things better when you have an evolving phenotype over time and our understanding of trajectory is really, really limited? You know, a lot of the clinical research over the past decade has been in cross-sectional and, and the work in early development uh, over time really demands investment and support because it's the absolutely critical partner to any of these biological advances. This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. To read the article discussed in the podcast, go to www.nature.com slash NPP. I'm Cynthia Graber. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 